0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing building effective instructional videos. And we have two guests today. The first is Zach Diamond, who you all have heard many a time. Zach, how are you doing?
1: I am doing great. I'm finally on break. So I'm doing better than ever before this year, I think.
0: Love it. Love it. I'm glad you need that rest. It has been quite the year. So I'm excited for you to get some time to recharge. And then we have an awesome special guest. It's kind of weird that I'm calling her a special guest because I work with her every single day, but this is the first time she's on the podcast. Many of the listeners probably know this person is, but Meg McGregor is joining us. She is our head of virtual mentorship and she's just an all-star educator when she implemented the model, an incredible asset to the Modern Classrooms Project team and really leads the front of the virtual mentorship program and frankly, a blended learning guru. Uh, So, she's here to join us. Meg, can you just introduce yourself, tell a little bit about your background and your kind of connection to this work and and how you joined the Modern Classroom Project team?
2: Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm really happy to be here today. Um, So, I'm a former physics, engineering, and computer science teacher from New York City. I taught in New York City public schools and then Washington, D.C. public schools where I met Kareem. Um, I was actually implementing the model in part when I was teaching in New York, but I didn't quite have all the tools. And when I came to DC and was working with Kareem, um, I really started using pacing trackers, really started honing um, my instructional videos. And like with the support of that community, it just like was next level for for me and my implementation. So that's kind of how I got involved. I joined Modern Classroom staff earlier this year, um, and I've been running the virtual mentorship program, as Kareem said. So uh, I'm really excited to be here because now when uh, some of the listeners, some of the people in our virtual mentorship program ask me like, hey, are you on the podcast? I can actually say yes, (laughs) because previously I've had to be like, actually, no, I'm not.
0: Well, you finally got the invite. Uh, We weren't keeping it from you. It just was the right (laughs) time this time. And no better topic for you to cover is blended learning. You obviously lead sort of optional sessions with a lot of school and district partners, particularly around this topic. I actually learned about what was my favorite screencaster, uh, explain everything as a math teacher through you. And at the time, I had no clue what this product was. So I'm extremely excited for you to share your expertise with everyone. And, you know, the focus of today's session is really about the process of building effective instructional videos. I think this is a topic that oftentimes can stress out teachers, can overwhelm teachers. There's a lot of sort of competing products out there. So the goal here is to give everyone sort of a background on both the purpose for instructional videos, the process for building it, the common pitfalls, and really address everything we can about instructional video creation. So... Uh, let's go ahead and get started. I think the first area we should actually start is the why, uh, you know, it's easy to just like do things um, just because someone else told you to or it's what everyone else is doing. But ultimately, we build instructional videos for a reason. So I want to first talk about what the core purpose of creating an instructional video in a classroom is. Zach, why don't you go ahead and start kind of from the lens of a current teacher? What do you see is the core purpose of an instructional video? Sure.
1: So, you know, in the modern classroom's model, we have these three kind of pillars, right? The blended learning, which is, I think, what we're mostly talking about today, the instructional videos, and then the self-pacing and the mastery-based grading, right? And for me, the three pillars, we've talked about this before, Karim, we talked on the first episode, the three pillars are sort of interdependent. And if we're going to have a self-paced classroom, self-paced learning, I think it's sort of necessary to record and then multiply the teacher. You know, on any given day in the class, you could have a kid on lesson one, another kid on lesson two, another kid on lesson three, four, and five, right? And there's just no possible way as the one teacher in a room with 25 kids to deliver five different lessons at the same time. Um, And so for me, the why, the purpose of using instructional videos and blended learning is to facilitate the self-pacing aspect of the model, which, for me, is like central that 's sort of the main draw for me personally to the model is the self pacing but it just couldn 't work without a recording of the lesson and that I think is the the real reason now there 's lots of other benefits um, you know kids that are absent can watch the videos at home, kids that need to rewatch the lesson over and over can do that. we can use uh, engagement tools, which we 'll talk about later, but the real main fundamentals here the blended learning for me is is a way of facilitating the self pacing.
0: Yep. That makes perfect sense. And Meg, what are your thoughts on this, especially both from when you were teaching uh, as well as now, as you support educators, like how do you see the purpose of the instructional video element of the model?
2: Yeah. I mean, echoing Zach, you cannot self pace without instructional videos, just period. Right. Um, but also I think something that we don't focus on and it's more of a, a benefit and not like the the direct purpose of instructional videos, but think about like at the end of the year when you're planning for like perhaps a, st- a state exam something huge an AP test something really high stakes normally kids can kind of be lost for review right how to prepare for that exam and I think the beauty of instructional videos is you're really building out a library for your whole curriculum that exists forever um, so at the end of a school year your kids preparing for that high-stakes exam, actually have your lessons recorded to go back to for review. And for me, that's so huge. And it's obviously, it's not the reason why we do this, but it's just something to re- to remember. It's a huge benefit of building these instructional videos.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think the idea that these things last, these videos last, is a powerful element of the rationale. Because ultimately, I think The student, you know, I think of to this day that like inspired us to do this model because we had to was the student who could not make it to class on time or couldn't make it to class consistently. And it was one of this idea, like core ideas around how do I support a student who comes to class 50% of the time or never makes it to the first 30 minutes of class? Now, a lot of folks will say, well, we need to improve the way we kind of incentivize students to come to buildings and all that good stuff, which I agree with. Sure. But ultimately... Every teacher is supporting students who aren't making it to class. So we have to have a solution for them. And it speaks to this idea of equity, right? Like when we build an instructional videos, not only do we unleash the capacity to let students work at their own pace, but we also just ensure that kids can access content in an unrestricted way, especially when they had to miss it for reasons that were out of their control. So I think there's a lot of elements here. I think the most important is obviously the facilitation of self-paced learning. But even without that, there's real power in making sure that these videos are Located on a digital home base and last in perpetuity to create equity and and help prepare students down the road when they need to review uh, content that's already been covered for summatives and exams and all that good stuff. So all great points. I think that's all especially true now when we think about how hard it is for kids to access content in the digital space and if there's Internet issues and all that good stuff. So then moving on to the research side. And Meg, I want you to start by kind of covering this because you train teachers at scale on the research that supports effective instructional video creation. And I had talked about for a while when we first built the organization, like this was actually a limited field of study, honestly. Like it was not that easy to find research on what an instructional video looks like, entails, um, you know, what has to go into making sure that a video is engaging. So can you kind of summarize what the existing research says on what an effective instructional video looks and feels like?
2: Sure. Five key points and they all kind of go together. The first two, one, you want your video to be highly focused. I think especially if you teach older kids, you teach later in high school subjects, you get into a sticky situation where a lot of your lessons might cover multiple objectives. But when you're thinking about creating instructional videos, you really want to try to hone in on one objective because ideally you want your video to be six minutes maximum. And I know this makes people panic. What six minutes, like when I'm doing direct instruction at the front of the room, that takes me 20, 25 minutes. How am I going to get that down to six minutes? Um, But it's actually really doable. We'll talk about that later. Um, But just something to note is like, it's easy to push yourself past that six minutes. And the study that we're citing here does show that after nine minutes, it's where attention really drops off for students. Um, But this particular study we cite is with older learners. So you really want to shoot for six minutes as the ideal, I would say for all learners. I I know for myself even, I I do better with shorter videos than longer videos. Um, But especially if you teach younger kids, you might want to think of six as even too much. I know a lot of our Our kindergarten teachers keep it even shorter than that, three minutes, four minutes. You want your videos to be highly visual. It's so hard to read and listen at the same time for adults and kids, right? I know when I'm in a presentation even and I'm looking at a slide that has paragraphs on it, I'm instantly reading the paragraphs and ignoring the person talking to me. So you really want to focus on images, handwriting over Uh, having a lot of text for your students to look at in your instructional video. And then you want to keep your videos moving. You want them to be sequential. You want to use animations, bring things in as you talk about them, highlight, annotate as you talk about those points. And then you want your videos to be interactive. You don't just want your kid to, you know, press play and then sit back and... space out, right? Um, there are a lot of tools we can use to keep kids engaged, uh, primarily applications that embed checks for understanding, like Edpuzzle, which we'll talk about later, but even something as simple as guided notes.
0: Yeah, no, and, and that's a perfect summary of the core ideas, and I think a lot of educators hear that and, frankly, understand that that's also just high-quality teaching. But when you're recording an instructional video and it sort of is created and then shared, you um, there's both the opportunity and the challenge of like pushing yourself to actually follow the research. You know, I remember teaching sort of in a traditional format and would just like lecture for 25 minutes, not even thinking about it. And no one necessarily knew unless I was getting observed. And the kids didn't necessarily complain aside from the fact that they found it you know, hard to follow or disengaging. But when you build an instructional video, there's a timestamp. If that thing says 22 minutes, you know, you've gone way over time. Um, If there's a bunch of text on slide, that's quite clear. So I think it's really interesting because one of the things we've heard from a lot of folks who now have started to build instructional videos consistently is that it helped them refine their pedagogy separate of the model itself, like really forced educators to be lean with what they were delivering to students, which I think is so important because ultimately kids learn by doing.
1: In terms of refining your pedagogy, like the reason that six minutes is achievable is because you're only including one objective. I think those two points, and we're looking at a graphic that I'll put in the show notes um, that, that listeners can look at and see what we're seeing. But the reason that a six minute video is ideal is because it is enough time to cover only one objective. You know, if you're covering more than one objective, you know, the kid's mind can start to cloud up and not, not be able to follow the logic of things. I always tell my mentees if, if you're ever saying in the video, now that we know this, we can do this, right? That's the point where you should stop and make the second thing a second video because it also gives you a chance to do a mastery check. Like this is all interconnected to me. And I think that the, sh- the, the brevity isn't about like concision of language. It's not about using fewer words or cutting out your ums and ahs. It's really about planning a unit with the lessons that are as refined as possible.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because it parlays beautifully into the next topic I want to discuss, which is how you actually figure out what videos you need to build in a unit. Um, because like you said, you don't want to build videos for no reason. Like there's no point in taking the time to build an instructional video that doesn't actually add value to the learning experience. Um, So ultimately, I think one of the hardest questions that sometimes get lost in the unit planning process is figuring out what you actually need to build a video on. So can you all share a little bit about how you thought about this as educators? Uh, And Zach, you can go ahead and start. Like, How do you think about taking your unit and deciding what actually requires an instructional video? What's the thought process look like?
1: Well, I always planned my units and I, you know, I planned out like the arc of the lessons that I would teach anyway. And so for me, it was basically just a matter of saying, okay, I'll make these into videos. And then as I got better at it, as I did it more and more, and I've learned how to to sort of cut apart the videos at the different objectives that I was explaining in the videos, I started thinking about, well, is this maybe two videos, right? Is this actually two objectives in one? I would write out my lesson objectives the way that I would in a traditional classroom that I used to, and I would say, well, how many videos is this, right? If the objective is make a new project, look up the tempo of your song, change the tempo of the project, and then write your name, that's actually like three or four objectives, and I would look at it and say, oh, okay, maybe I should make this into more than one video. Um, and now that's that's basically how I do it. I, I still plan out the arc of the lessons, which for me is basically sort of a step, a series of steps towards completing the project of a unit. And then I just decide where to make the videos on those lessons that I've planned out.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And Meg, what are your thoughts on this? Like, how did you approach it as an educator and or as a person now supporting educators in doing this? Like, when do people when should people build instructional videos in the scope of their unit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as anything that would have been whole group direct instruction. That's a video now. Um, And just to give you like a specific example, as a physics teacher, I'm teaching specific problem solving skills that are usually based in like different formula that students are using because of the way physics is structured at the high school level. So for me, I usually am... Teaching kids, you know, here's this formula, here's what it's for, right? And then I would do some example problems, but this is kind of like piggybacking off of what Zach said. When I first started doing this, I would say, okay, my introduction to new material and my two, three examples, that's my whole video. And then I'm at 15, 17 minutes and no one wants to watch that. (laughs) So that's when you start to break it down and you think, okay, so maybe I'm going to make my introduction to new material just my first video and that's four minutes long. And then I'm going to make a smaller video for each example that I would show kids and this is also just better teaching in general, because the student who watches the intro to new material and then watches the first example and is good to go, they don't have to, you know, power through examples two and three, right? They can kind of uh, pick their own poison and, and really identify what they need to move on. Um, and then just to speak from like the science teacher perspective, I've toyed around with even using instructional videos for demos, or even demoing a lab that students are gonna do. And this is actually really powerful, especially if you work in a setting where you have chronically absent students. You don't need to you know, keep resetting up this lab to demo for kids. If you actually make these videos demoing the labs, you're good to go. Uh, you make the video once and then it's there for students. So one, it's there for their reference in the future, but two, you don't actually have to show every kid how to do this lab.
0: That's really interesting. One thing I would do always is just take a look at every single piece of core content that I had to cover in a unit and then isolate the skills. So like, what are the literal skills kids are learning? Are they learning how to find the slope? Are they learning how to graph a point? You know, and all those different elements. And then I'd actually decide at that stage, does a kid need to watch an instructional video to understand this content? And usually the answer was yes in that an instructional video would be valuable in introducing the information. But in some cases, I'd arrive at the conclusion that, like, actually they could just look at an example problem um, and then potentially dive into the assignment. Or they could, you know, go into the room and explore some type of, you know, tool or activity, and that would drive their understanding. So one thing I just encourage listeners to do is not just always assume that every single lesson or skill requires an instructional video. I would say most usually do. But don't build one if you don't think it needs to. And I would say maybe one out of 10 lessons in my classroom as a math teacher didn't actually have an instructional video associated with it.
2: Just to piggyback off of that, I mean, I think that's just in general good teaching, right? You, you look at your unit and you think, okay, what things do I need to directly instruct my students and what things can my students discover on their own? You don't have to throw that out when you shift to using instructional videos. You can still use that principle to plan your units.
0: Yep. And I've actually seen a number of teachers and I actually started to do this. Once you get really comfortable with video creation, you can just assess let's say five of your students are ahead of pace and are struggling with one particular skill and there's clearly a misconception, you can go home and build a two, three, four minute video with an additional example problem or just, you know, kind of clarifying an idea and just drop it into your learning management system as a supplemental resource for folks who need it. So I think there's real power there as well. Um, I think it's it's a really, you know, effective way to constantly just be responding to students' needs and keeping you know, information that lasts, like this is something Maggie talked about, like information that doesn't actually go away um, is really, really impactful for students, especially if they're struggling to master skills. So let's dig in now to the planning phase. So you know what lesson you're gonna build. You figured out exactly what the topic is that you're covering, you kind of have a vision, frankly, of what it was like to maybe deliver this in person through a traditional lecture format. Now it's time to actually start building the the building blocks necessary to record an instructional video. Meg, how would you say you approach this or educators should approach the planning phase of building an instructional video?
2: So I always tell teachers to think about how they normally would teach this lesson. Are you someone who uses slides to teach? Are you someone who, you know, I called myself the doc cam queen. I love my doc cam. I'm always underneath the doc cam uh, working through guided notes with my students that they also have in front of them. Um, so I tell people think about how you normally taught, no need to reinvent the wheel. So if you taught over slides, there you go. You're gonna take that slide deck and alter it to fit an instructional video. And what I mean by that is apply that research, right? One objective, more images than text, etc. cetera. Um, if you were using guided notes, Uh, Full disclosure, even though I'm this blended learning guru, uh, I think probably 90% of my videos, I took a a screenshot of my guided notes and annotated on top of it. Um, So you really don't have to reinvent the wheel. So that's, that's a starting point. The second part of this is once you've gone through that process and, you know, thought about how you normally would teach and you shift that to video creation and you're comfortable with video creation then you're in kind of this sweet spot where you get to ask yourself okay so like i know how to make instructional videos and they're fine they're maybe they're even good but what is the best way to give this information via instructional video. And just to give you a concrete example of this is as a computer science teacher, I would constantly make screencasts of myself coding. And I did this for about like a whole year for my students. Then at the end of that year, I realized that while that was easy to do, That was not the best way to introduce that material to my students. Those were too long. They weren't visually interesting. So then I went to this idea of, and this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves talking about tools, but I started introducing those concepts using explain everything instead and actually uh, coding less and utilizing other tools more.
0: Yeah, this is really, really interesting because I think there's a one-dimensional understanding sometimes that's pushed out there around instructional video creation. And I think it's easy to just kind of think that the only way to build an instructional video is to create a really fancy slide deck and then screencast over it. Um, I think that's actually th- the most digestible approach to take. But I remember being shocked walking into your classroom and asking you how you build instructional videos. And you are like, I just take a screenshot of these guided notes and then I annotate them with explain everything. And that was the first time I'd been exposed to explain everything and realized there was this cool annotation sort of interactive whiteboard. And that's not to say that your way of building videos was necessarily better than any others. Um, It just shows the level of flexibility. And I know, for example, Zach, you use a pretty, you're pretty intensive with your instructional video creation because you like video editing, right? So you kind of take it to the next level from a video editing standpoint. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I would say that, you know, I do audio and video editing as a hobby, as a as, it's what I teach. And so my approach to making videos is a little bit more advanced than I think that anybody should even aspire to. It's just my own personal thing that I like to do. But, you know, in terms of planning, actually planning is my jam. Planning is the thing that I love most about teaching. What I do when I plan these these units that I make is I actually do the project myself. And I think it's actually just in general, really important to do exemplars and do the project yourself, because some of the things that you wind up doing, like you wind up doing the things that you ask the kids to do, and it's like not fun and it's not useful. And you're like, okay, I can cut this. But what I'll do is I'll screencast myself doing the entire project. And Meg just made a great point about not just putting a screencast in front of the kids, but what I do with that screencast is I say, okay, I have this three-hour video of me making a song, right? What are the things that I did that the kids have to do, and what are the things that the kids have to do that they have to be taught how to do that I haven't taught them already? And then I'll plan my unit around those skills, right? And I'll make an instructional video that basically takes a static screenshot of the part of the project where I was doing that thing. And I'll draw on it, you know, here's the button you have to press, and here's the thing you drag in, and here's where you can find this, and here's how you do these things. And I'll actually edit in some of the screencast of me doing it as well as a model.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, what this speaks to is the broad diversity of how you can do this work. I think the most common ways, correct me if I'm wrong, Meg, to build instructional videos, I'd say the number one planning tool is Google Slides or PowerPoint. Just lay out the content that you plan to be sharing. Try to keep it to a short amount of content covers one objective. The second most common is probably to plan using guided notes, to think about sort of what it is that you want your students to leave with. And then that's sort of the backbone of the instructional video. And then some of the more creative and or just frankly, advanced videos will include what some of what Zach describes, which is sort of, you know, an in-depth sort of deep dive into content that includes some editing and potentially layering different images, text or annotations on top. Um, But ultimately, I'd say 95%, if not more of the teachers build slide decks and screencast over them. And what I think is most important to remember as educators is that's where the bulk of the research is actually factored in. A lot of times, people think that the research is being executed during the recording phase. But the way you ensure that your video stays short is focused on one objective: is image heavy, has annotations/slash animations, and all that good stuff is actually built in in the planning phase. It's creating a slide deck or a guided notes that naturally infuses all those elements, and then it makes the recording process much easier. If you just kind of go into the recording phase thinking that you can kind of wing it and do a lecture on the fly, you're likely going to hit a lot of the common pitfalls that we see around videos being too long, not very focused, and not really using some of the key enhancement elements that make it really engaging. And that's critical. And I would say, I mean, Meg, just throw out a percentage, everyone. What percentage of your time in the creation of an instructional video do you think you spent planning that video versus everything else? Meg, what would you say for one video?
2: 80% planning, 20% everything else.
1: Zach, what do you think? Oh, you don't want to hear mine. (laughs) Mine's like 90% video editing just because that's how I like to do it. Don't follow Um, Zach's lead on that. Don't do it. Don't do it my way. And
0: I would say for me, it was anywhere between 60 and 80% of the time was the planning. I knew once I had my slide deck ready, because I was usually a slide deck creator, the video recording process was going to be very smooth um, and easy to do. So that's something to keep in mind um, if you're an educator, kind of thinking about how you manage your time. So you've planned this thing. You either have a guide of notes ready, you have a slide deck ready, or you're doing something wild like Zach. And it's time to actually record the instructional video. Meg, talk us through what options folks have. And this is obviously not going to be every single option that's out there. But I think it's important to kind of frame the different options you have when actually recording the instructional video.
2: Yep. So I'm going to do like two buckets. So first, just starting with screencasters. So There are a million different screencasters out there. I'm just going to talk about two because there are favorites, but I know a lot of people use screencasters outside of of these two. So you do you. Um, But I'm going to start with my personal favorite, which is Screencastify. Screencastify is a Google Chrome extension. I always tell teachers if you are afraid of this, shift into a techie world, this is the screencaster you should use. Uh, It is so simple. It's as simple as clicking twice to get it started, clicking a stop button to stop it, and then the video just appears in your browser when you're done. It really doesn't get that much easier than that. Screencastify also integrates with Edpuzzle, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, So I think this is really like entry level, the easiest way to create instructional videos. This is what I recommend to people really new to this. Um, Screencast-o-matic is the other screencaster I'm going to talk about. And this screencaster is robust. So if you are like Zach, and maybe not to the extreme of Zach, but a little bit like Zach, and you're interested in like really playing around with editing, um, annotations, putting in text, subtitles, Screencast-O-Matic is the way to go. Um, its editing features are truly crazy. Maybe Zach can speak to this a little bit more, um, but it's, it's really, truly robust. So I would say Screencast-O-Matic is a great go-to if you're already a little bit comfortable with the instructional video process, you want to push yourself a little bit more, or if you just have a specific need for more editing tools.
0: It's interesting because I hear a lot of different opinions on this. So I just want to caution everyone to know, like, pick the screencaster that's best for you. Um, there's also Loom. I've used Hippo Video. Um, there's a bunch of different ones. They all tend to have very similar functionality. And, and Meg is definitely identifying sort of the distinction. And a lot of times it ends up being a question of preference or what your school or district has purchased. Like, I just happen to like Screencast-O-Matic. I find it easier to use personally like the editing function really like the way that the truncating works and i don't use google chrome extensions very often but then someone like meg who is probably better than me at sort of the tech side might like screencast if i'm more so kind of like with the lms structure where you know whatever lms your school or district uses if your school or district has purchased a screencaster probably want to try to stick with that one because most likely once you get comfortable with it um you'll be able to figure it out is that a fair assessment um meg on the Screencasting? end?
2: Oh, definitely. And I would just add, like, the benefit of using your whatever your school pays for is that's the pro version. (laughs) So the pro version of anything is going to be better than the non pro version, the basic version of its competitor. So if you have access to the pro version of a screencaster, go ahead and use that one.
1: You know, I'll also I want to jump in and also say, like, if you're the kind of teacher who is anxious about the idea of making videos at all, and the word screencast is freaking you out, you can open a zoom meeting with yourself and just record the zoom meeting. I've had two mentees that thought of this independently. And I was like, what a good idea. You know, it's just something that teachers can get their mind around. It's not hard to conceptualize recording a zoom meeting that is a screencast. It doesn't have any editing tools at all. You just wind up with a file, but you know, it works in a pinch.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. And it is a simple way to build one. You know, ultimately, I think when you use a screencast, you have a little more flexibility. But that's exactly right. You can definitely record what is an instructional video by using zoom and that. So Meg, you just covered, just so I make sure the audience is clear on this, you covered the idea of using screencasts, which tend to be on non-touchscreen devices, right? Most people use those on non-touchscreen devices, or is that used on touchscreen devices and tablets as well as sort of desktop computers?
2: So I used to think screencaster primarily for a laptop that's non-touchscreen. But interestingly, I'm seeing people use screencasters on iPads, on two-in-one laptops, on normal laptops. It's really about what you're comfortable with. Um, don't think you need to choose, like, the fanciest option because you, you're you thinking, like, I want to be the best video creator ever. Like, really choose what you're most comfortable with to begin with and then start exploring those extra tools. There are some reasons as to why you might want to screencast your iPad as opposed to using something like Explain Everything, which I'm about to talk about. Um, for example, if you're an art teacher and you have an iPad and a stylus, you are in business. Screencast yourself demoing h- how you are drawing X or Y, right? That, that's, for me, an obvious uh, use of screencasting on an iPad. But another example might be en- engineering. I, I used to screencast my iPad all the time. Um, it really depends on what you're trying to do. So I think the advice I would give is think about what you're trying to achieve and then think to yourself, do I just need to straight up record my str- my screen or do I want to be able to really write and annotate?
0: Yep. And, and that's the key distinction. So with all these screencasters, just generally speaking, um, the goal is that you're recording your screen. You have some visual aid that's usually a slide deck, but sometimes a guided notes that accompanies it, and you're recording it that way. There's some light annotation functions, very powerful animation functions because you have you know slide decks that move. So slow release that information, annotate everything that's on the slide. So when you talk about it, it's there. Then we go to the next topic, it reappears. But then there's this second phase of instructional video creation, which is these interactive whiteboards. And in particular, there's one product that we often recommend at the Modern Classrooms Project. Can you explain what it's like to use that product and why it's so valuable for certain teachers, Meg?
2: Sure. So Explain Everything is an interactive whiteboard app, as Kareem said, and it is just so powerful. So if you want to be able to write highlight, insert videos, insert images, insert a video of your face, like all this stuff, and you really want to play around with that, explain everything's for you. But explain everything's for you also if you just want to, like me, take a, a screen grab of your guided notes and be able to annotate and highlight. Like that's that's really where explain everything shines for me. It's just that I'm really able to mimic what I would do under my doc cam. I know that teachers who teach English or other literature subjects really like Explain Everything because they're able to do close readings and show students how to annotate and model that. So that's where Explain Everything really shines. But I have seen people do awesome stuff with Explain Everything. We have um, a math teacher we worked with this summer, was a Modern Classrooms fellow who actually started putting Desmos into her Explain Everything. So she'd go through, she'd teach the lesson, and then she, you know, she and she's annotating, she's highlighting, and then she'd switch slides and say, okay, so let's graph this in Desmos. And she's doing this all in Explain Everything. Um, and yes, you could do this in a screencast, but doing it in Explain Everything is just really really clean. You're not like jumping around between tabs in your browser. So it's really good uh, so students can really just focus on what you're talking about and not get distracted by all the other stuff going on on your screen.
0: Yeah, you know, and what's interesting, I mean, ultimately, explain everything requires a touchscreen device. And really, it's more built for tablets and specifically iPads, for the the initial kind of launch of it. So Keep that in mind as an educator. I would still say most educators uh, are using traditional screencasters like Screencastify and Screencast-O-Matic on a desktop computer. But if you're kind of sitting there and thinking, you know, I've seen Khan Academy videos. I know people write on those videos. I would really like to feel like I'm writing on a whiteboard. And iPad is a really powerful investment there with a stylus. And just keep in mind, the actual Explain Everything app is not expensive. It's just having the device um, with a stylus. To accompany it so you know when we used to do our fellowship we would purchase ipads for our fellows and it would be about a 400 hundred dollar package to get the full thing with a stylus and, and that's how you can use explain everything but still more common more often than not educators are using traditional screencasters to do this um, anything else that we want to point out in sort of the recording phase um, particularly around Are there any variances that we've seen in educators who teach different content areas during the recording phase? For example, I've seen quite consistently that a lot of times math and science teachers actually really like Explain Everything because they want to solve the problem and show all the writing out. So the power to annotate in that way is really useful. Whereas if you're teaching in history, you don't feel the need as much to kind of do intricate equations and solving. Are there any other patterns you've seen, Meg or Zach, around sort of when people choose to use traditional screencasting for versus explain everything?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's pr- that's pretty accurate, Cream. I don't think that I see anything too different, other than I would add that. English teachers specifically uh, who might be more prone to using slides, if they do have explain everything, that's huge for annotations and annotating with kids.
0: The other thing to keep in mind too is if you do want to screencast an entire program, sometimes people will prefer to use traditional screencasting because it's easier to use the program on a desktop computer. It all kind of depends on the different apps available, but for example, I often would screencast over Google Sheets to show kids how to make graphs in Google Sheets. It was much easier for me to do that on a desktop computer and just record my desktop and take them to Google Sheets and do all those calculations. It was a little bit more glitchy and challenging to do on an iPad. So that's another element. Zach, I'm sure that also sometimes applies for you uh, when you're using some of the softwares when you're teaching kids how to kind of build beats.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that the the bigger point here is like the screencast is more valuable when you are going to have the kids actually do a task on the computer and you're modeling how how you do it. I mean, explain everything revolutionized my teaching. It's I would say it's 80 90% of what's in my video is me annotating on and explain everything slide. But, you know, when I put the screencasts in there, it's because that's what the kids are going to do. You know, we could probably have a whole podcast episode on the value of modeling for kids. You know, modeling is huge and they'll they'll copy you. They'll do what you do. And so that's when the screencasts become really valuable. Explain Everything for me is more like sort of teaching, direct instruction, and the screencast is more like modeling. Totally. Yeah, no, that makes a lot
0: of sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, in my teaching career, I only used screencasts when I was modeling how to code, how to build something in AutoCAD when I was teaching engineering. I rarely, if ever, screencasted over slides. It just wasn't worth it for my content. didn't make sense.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So then let's talk briefly about common pitfalls during recording, because I do think when you're really comfortable recording instructional videos, you know, you get used to this and you the, the pitfalls are either not intimidating or don't come up as frequently but for new video recorders you know it can be overwhelming at times when you initially start and you can feel like is this how it's supposed to go uh, this feels very difficult so what are some common pitfalls you all experience when you first started building instructional videos that others should expect as they kind of dive into this work
2: I'm happy to start us off. I have so many thoughts on this um, because I see so many videos and I talk to teachers about this all the time. Um, A huge one that seems really small but always comes back to bite you in the behind is referencing specific times and places. So like we've mentioned earlier, you want to be building a library of videos that you're using year after year knowing how much time you can put into a single video, you certainly don't want to be redoing this every year of your teaching career. So avoid dropping in that this is lesson 1.2 on blah, blah, blah. Drop lesson numbers. I would even say don't reference your school in case you move schools. Don't reference the time of year. I saw someone mention COVID in a video the other day. Um, You really want to be able to reuse these. So avoid 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 making it specific to a specific
1: time or place this year i was super happy because this is my second year teaching using the model and i was like i'm gonna reuse all my videos and i went and i watched one of the videos from unit one and in the video i said all right on google classroom click on 1920 unit one lesson one and I was like, dang, now I have to remake the whole video just because I said 1920, and now it's 2021. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's, it's, I've seen, I did the same mistake the first year I did this model years ago. Um, that's a very common pitfall. You know, one I say to folks all the time is if you're using slides and you're not using Explain Everything, which is really powerful for annotation, so you can draw all over the video, most folks are still using a traditional screencaster and using slides animate, 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 one of the biggest and most powerful aspects of using any PowerPoint or Google slide function is you can slow release information. So one of the biggest red flags I see when I open up an instructional video that someone submitted that I want to get feedback on is if I see a slide, and all this great content just immediately appears. And they start talking about point one. And the problem is, all students when they see a whole bunch of information, just start writing it down. They stop listening to you and just start writing. The same thing happens if you walk into a classroom and you see a giant slide pop up. Right? The kids aren't actually listening to what the teacher is trying to say. Sometimes will completely ignore and check for understanding and a question because they're just like scribbling every piece of information possible down from what's being displayed. The same applies in instructional videos. So one common pitfall I see is that folks will forget to add in animations. It's a it's a quick but an extremely important step that makes videos exponentially more engaging.
1: Yeah, I think if not animations, then annotations, right? Because I think the worst thing that you can do is have a static screen, even if it's visual and there's no text, just a static screen with you talking for more than maybe eight to 10 seconds. It's just, I don't know how else to say it, but it's kind of boring. Yeah. Kids disengage. They need they need to see something visually to keep their attention on the screen. And you can say what you're doing, and that will actually increase the engagement by commentating on what they're seeing on the screen. And so just movement on the screen, whether it's animation, like you said, Kareem or annotation, I think movement on the screen is is a, or not having movement is the pitfall. And I, and I see it in lots of videos from my mentees and I, and I pointed out to them.
0: Yep. And then the last thing I'll say, which I think everyone can agree on, although Zach, you're a perfectionist with your videos, you're sort of a rare beast. Um, but ultimately just don't get hung up on little mistakes It just doesn't matter. I can't stress this enough. Like your kids are not watching a video that you build so that it can look like a Khan Academy video or a perfectly purchased product. They actually like when there's a little bit of sort of grittiness to the video. Um, It's personal. It's real. You're making errors at times. You will drive yourself completely insane if you obsess over the quality of your video and making sure that's perfect. And it's not actually improving engagement. It was improving engagement. I'd say otherwise, but it truly isn't. Um, so keep in mind that as an educator, you should not be obsessing over the quality of these videos. Make sure it's clear, it follows the research, and it's personal. Um, of course, if it's like hard to see something and or hear something, that's a different story. But if you just want it to look really nice and be pretty, it's just not worth your time. Um, and do not think that you're going to somehow never make a mistake. You'll make plenty of mistakes. And one of the coolest ways to m- correct for mistakes is to actually enhance the video with questions, which I think is a nice kind of segue into what I see as the final phase of instructional video creation. You've, you've figured out what you want to build the video on. You've planned the video out on slides and or a guided notes. You've either decided to record it on a screencaster like Fire, or Screencast-o-matic, or you've chosen to go with Explain Everything and do heavy annotations and really have an interactive whiteboard on a touchscreen. Now you've finished recording your video, there's one phase that is often forgotten. It's the enhancing phase. So, Meg, can you talk a little bit about the two key ways we see video enhancements happening at the Modern Classrooms Project?
2: Sure. So one is embedding checks for understanding. This is so important for many reasons. One, it gives your students something to do while they're watching. It forces them to think about what you're saying. Um, but also like these replace those checks for understanding that you would be asking students live during direct instruction and students need these. So you really want to think about those questions you're asking to make sure students are following along with your lesson and really getting those key key points. And um, both of these applications that I'm going to talk about, Edpuzzle, PlayPosit, and even Nearpod now that allow you to embed checks for understanding in instructional videos, they also allow you to give feedback. Um, So not only are you able to ask your students about what you're teaching, you're also able to check what they said, and then give them feedback on their response live in real time. This, I mean, I'm guilty of leaving out Ed Puzzle when I'm pressed for time, but honestly, this is perhaps the most important step um, because this is what actually makes your videos, not just a YouTube video for your kids. This actually replicates the lesson, what a student would experience in person. So really, it's so important to include those checks for understanding. The second way, and this is the simplest way to enhance your videos, to give your kids something to do while they watch, is to give your students guided notes. Um, One, you want your kids to be able to walk away from this lesson, from your instructional video with a reference, right? So that's like the primary purpose for guided notes, but it's also keeping them focused on what's important, right? What you choose to have them write down perhaps emphasizes what you're teaching them. And you could do this in a number of ways. Some teachers like to just straight up PDF their slides and put in holes at key points so students fill in the holes, as they watch the instructional video. You know me, I PDFed my guided notes. So me and my students are doing the same thing at the same time in our guided notes. Or maybe your school uses Cornell notes and you give your students Cornell notes with those guided questions. Um, really, whatever makes sense for your setting, it's just so important to make sure your kids have something to do that's meaningful while they're watching. And the last point I'll add this is a shout out to a teacher we have in Michigan. I've heard time and time again, younger teachers who teach younger kids say, Ed Puzzle not for younger kids, so I'm not going to use it. Uh, I've seen teachers use audio notes to ask their students questions in Edpuzzle and then use pictures as the multiple choices for uh, for the answer responses. So like Edpuzzle really can be adapted to be used for any grade level. So definitely uh, don't throw it out because it seems like something that's maybe not accessible to your students.
0: Yeah, I love that. And Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, use Edpuzzle and guided notes for all your videos. Is that right?
1: Yes, I do. So Edpuzzle, I love Edpuzzle. The thing with Edpuzzle is that I think it's really important to remember that these questions are not a quiz um, and to make them feel like that. You know, Edpuzzle, when it it throws up the question on the screen, the slides pause or the video pauses and it stays there on the screen so the kids can still look at the video. And something that I tell my, my mentees often, I would say every single one of my mentees has probably heard this from me, is that. It's really important to put in a question to which the answer is is obvious, because the effect of having a question that you feel like you might get wrong, I think that that can be disengaging. Because I've I've had that experience myself. I'll be watching their video, and it's on a subject that I don't teach, I know very little about, and I'm like, oh, well, what what's the answer? And I start looking over the slide, I'm like, I don't, I can't figure this out, and then I feel like, oh, I'm gonna get it wrong, and I want to avoid that for the kids, you know. And so what I do is I put in an answer that is like just verbatim text that's already on the slide right there. And then I put in another answer that is, you know, not exactly obviously wrong, but, not right. And then one answer that's totally ridiculous and they're silly and they're fun for the kids. I mean, I teach in middle school so that I can be kind of playful with them, but it's not a quiz. I think that that's my big point here is that it's really important to not disengage them by making them feel like they're going to get it wrong.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's powerful because Zach, I remember actually when I first had launched instructional videos with Edpuzzle, kids were really spooked by the questions mm-hmm. um, because they felt intimidated and they didn't know the answer and it caused them to sort of freeze. And I think part of that's because they've been conditioned to be afraid of sort of checks for understanding in a sort of live setting because it's intimidating to try to answer a question, a whole group that you may not know the answer to. But ultimately I think easing them in with some easy sort of softball questions makes them feel a little bit more comfortable. And then reinforcing this idea that the purpose of the question is a check for understanding it's designed for you to kind of evaluate where you're at in, in the video and see if you're not understanding something. And it was a great way to prompt kids to actually ask me questions. So if they took a question or answered a question in the Edpuzzle video that I had created, and then they got it wrong, they would raise their hand and say, you know, Mr. Fair, what did I not get here? What did I misunderstand? Um, And that was the power of actually providing multiple choice questions because it gives them that immediate feedback. So if they get the question wrong, they instantaneously know at that moment what the right answer was, and that can inspire a follow-up question. So I really like that approach, um, and I think that's powerful. So ultimately, there's really two key enhancing tools that we see. I mean, there's others that you can use, but the two primary ones are looping in and adding questions into instructional videos that really bring those to life and make them more engaging. The two most popular tools are Edpuzzle and PlayPosit. Again, frankly, the key here is really seeing if your district has purchased one or the other, um, because ultimately... The pro versions are the ones you want to be using. And then the second piece is guided notes, which any educator can do. And a lot of people do them in really creative and cool and different ways. I think the most common is just a PDF, whatever's in the actual video, so that students are then annotating on top of it and or filling in the blanks and that kind of stuff. Um, but those are the most powerful ways to ensure that when a kid is watching an instructional video, they're not just compliantly sitting and waiting for the video to end, but actually leave with something and can be metacognitive throughout the experience and answering questions. So I love those two options. And I, I always find videos with those two things to be exponentially more engaging. So I want to close this out. This has been a fairly long one, but I think this is just such an important concept. Uh, building instructional videos is challenging and exciting and interesting and, and frankly, can. Have, revolutionary impacts on your practice and ultimately is the on-ramp to building out a self-paced, mastery-based classroom. So what are some final tips you all would leave for educators? If you could say one thing to a new educator who's about to build their first instructional video and is intimidated, Meg, what would you say to them uh, to kind of encourage them that they can do this and they can build effective instructional videos?
2: Yeah, I mean, so many things, but to keep it short, I would say don't deviate from what your normal teaching practice is. I know I I kind of mentioned this earlier, but really if you normally use slide decks, use the slide decks you use. Maybe alter them slightly to be uh, more effective according to the research we mentioned earlier. But don't, you know, if you're a doc cam teacher like me, don't start building slide decks with animations and go crazy, like really just take your own teaching style and think how do I adapt this for instructional videos? Um, don't spend time reinventing the wheel because ultimately you really just want to get better at teaching via instructional videos and then you're actually gonna wanna change your videos. So that first year of making videos just might end up being something you throw out. So I would say don't spend too much time going crazy. Keep it simple, keep them short, keep them concise and then start uh, honing your craft a little bit after you're comfortable.
1: Love
0: it. And Zach, what would you say?
1: Totally. I mean, I would echo exactly what Meg said. Um, you know, if you are listening to this and you're considering trying out instructional videos and you feel anxious about the the change in the format, um, remember that you know how to plan and deliver a lecture to a group of 25 children. You know, that's that's so hard. And if you can do it well, then making an instructional video is easier because... Your computer won't interrupt you, you know? You can deliver the lecture effectively and just record it. And, and so there's nothing that really stands in the way of you rolling this out as a video as long as you can record your lecture. And, and you know, Kareem, you mentioned this earlier, the idea of not being a perfectionist about it and not going back and trying over and over. And, you know, even me, I, you know, my video production is very involved um, and that's unique, and I don't recommend it for most teachers. But even I'm not a perfectionist in terms of the editing. You know, I, I do write the scripts. I do A-roll and B-roll. I do all this stuff. But when I get down to it, if I find a mistake in there, I'm not going to go back and fix it because I don't have the time, and the kids don't care. Like They're not going to be like, oh, Mr. Diamond made a mistake here, and I'm not going to learn this. You know, that's not, that's not how it works. And I know, like, I've been a musician for, for my whole life, and I've recorded a lot, and I've recorded these videos, and I know that, like, when the red light is flashing and you're recording – it changes how you, how you feel, you know, you can feel a little bit anxious, you can feel like this is getting actually recorded. So it's like the real deal. Now, just relax and record, you're a teacher, and you know how to deliver these lectures. And it's going to be good. And the kids are going to learn from it, even if it's not perfect.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And you know, one thing I would just tell everyone is learning how to build an instructional video is like learning any new skill. And it's a tech based skill, which means there's a learning curve. So don't be intimidated if the first video you build takes you two to three hours. Don't be intimidated when you're building your first instructional videos, if you run into kind of challenges and you're stuck, feeling like you can't figure out how to maneuver the different programs. It is extremely common to go through that, but the curve is steep. So once you start learning how to build instructional videos and get some under your belt, suddenly something that took you two to three hours can be reduced down to 45 minutes and even shorter than that. If you keep kind of sticking with it so don't be intimidated by those first videos you build it was funny because i hadn't built instructional videos for probably a year um, until recently because we actually have been redoing the videos in our free online course um, so that's going to be released in the next couple months and you you all will be see, be able to see this brand new free course and so i had to get back into instructional video creation i had built a whole new set of instructional videos um, for the free online course, which is about 22. And, you know, the first video or two that I built, I sort of had to reflex my skills. It was like, I was learning how to dribble a basketball again, when I hadn't dribbled a basketball in you know 10 years. And it was frustrating at first, you know, I hit some roadblocks, I was maneuvering how to use screencast-o-matic again, and trying to figure out how to get my face at the bottom right correctly. And, you know, sometimes my pen wouldn't work. And then after I did one or two of them, then suddenly it started to flow. And I actually tracked my time. And the first video took me an hour and a half, but the last 10 each took me about 30 to 40 minutes. So just keep in mind as you're building instructional videos that everyone is learning um, it's supposed to be challenging at the beginning but there is a light at the end of the tunnel it will accelerate and ultimately the payoffs are so powerful when you have all these videos that students are watching and you're not consumed with putting on these performances at the front of the room that can be so exhausting so that's my big piece of advice um, I want to close this out today so first of all Zach and Meg thank you so much for joining us Meg hopefully this is Not the last time you'll be on the podcast. Zach, we know you'll be here plenty of times. So thank you both for joining me today and discussing this very important topic for our model.
2: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
0: Happy to be here. Yeah, this was fun. Awesome. So everyone, you should be listening to this, hopefully on your break. I hope you are getting some rest um, during this challenging time. Remember that you can always access our content, our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org, our mentorship program, Uh, is always available. You heard from two of our incredible mentors, Meg and Zach, today. We're partnering with schools and districts across the country, especially as folks start to think about what's kind of coming next, particularly when students go back to buildings after The pandemic hopefully subsides, um, providing folks with an on-ramp to really personalize to students' needs because we know the diversity of learning levels and just needs in general, social-emotional needs, are going to be wider than ever before. So we're always available to support in that way. Make sure you're getting some rest. The Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator Credential, the first round of applications is due December 31st. We hope to see a number of you apply, and we will pick this up again next week. Have a good one, everyone.